Listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Today in Civil War Talk Radio, we look at the Battle of Gettysburg, July 1863. Again? Gettysburg again? How many times can we go back to Little Round Top and Devil's Den? It turns out, at least one more. Just as Lee's rebel army went into Gettysburg more than once, not just on that famous July 1st, but also in the days before the battles. That's what we'll look at today as the panicked Pennsylvania countryside responded to the Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania in July 1863 before the Army of the Potomac arrived. We'll be talking with author Scott L. Mingus Sr. about his book Flames Beyond Gettysburg, The Confederate Expedition to the Susquehanna River, June 1863. Today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful Friday afternoon in March 2011 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina where, as always, I speak just for myself, not for the university or the history department or the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences, nor academic affairs or any other branch of the university. And likewise, my guest will surely speak only for himself. With legal matters out of the way, it is a beautiful day. Uh, spring might finally be coming here after uh, an extraordinary winter, uh, extraordinary weather and natural phenomenon, uh, phenomena around the globe this year. This past week has seen the, the uh, horrifying earthquake uh, in Japan and its uh, 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 results, and I'm sure everyone uh, is thinking about the victims of that. And uh, to Japanese listeners to the show, and there may be one, 
our, our best wishes from everyone in the Civil War community uh, and thoughts for the uh, quick recovery of your country. Well, here in the United States, uh, the big news is that it's NCAA tournament weekend. Uh, but the big, the really big sports news uh, would, of course, involve local soccer. Uh, many longtime listeners to the show have asked, what about the Greenville Stars? When do they go back into action? Um, well, it turns out there is no Greenville Stars uh, report forthcoming this season. My older daughter is off to college, no longer plays locally, and my younger daughter is playing for the local high school team. And I can't really report on how they're doing because uh, there are other high schools that they play against, and perhaps listeners uh, uh, from the Carolina area might might be rooting for one of their opponents. It's too close to real sports. Youth soccer was fun, but uh, uh, but now they're out for blood. I was just looking at uh, her, her team's Facebook site for the upcoming beatdown that they promise against the girls of uh, D.H. Conley High uh, when J.H. Rose takes them on Monday. See, I'm talking about it anyway. Um, it's too too interesting to avoid. Uh, fortunately, my daughter is, is uh, in her first year and thus is, is bouncing back between the varsity and JV squads. Uh, as she gets older, she will hopefully be a permanent varsity member. Uh, but the JV play tonight, and, and that's still more like youth soccer. Just go out there and kick the dang ball up and down the field and uh, uh, there are kids who've never played the game and those who are pretty good and it's a, a fun mix to watch. Uh, before we jump in, I will just share an observation listening to the promotional material before the show uh, for other shows on the on the channel. Uh, always entertaining. The self-improvement show uh, is one that seems to be getting uh, announcements at the beginning of this show. And of course, self-improvement is a good thing. We could all use that, I guess. But I date myself in saying I recognize the theme music that they're playing underneath the uh, voice for the self-improvement show, and it's uh, the old Alice Cooper classic, No More Mr. Nice Guy. So apparently self-improvement consists in getting rid of the nice guy, and uh, I don't know what you replace it with, but if that's self-improvement, I'm just I'll, I'll just keep on going as I am. Later... This month and next month, we have some more uh, very fine shows coming up. Next week, uh, Stephen Boyd will talk to us about Civil War patriotic envelopes. Uh, you'll have to hear it to find out how interesting it is. It's one of those shows where you think, what can, what can there be to say? Uh, uh, but we'll find out. Uh, Civil War patriotic envelopes next week, April Fool's Day, April 1st, Joe Fulton will be talking with us about Mark Twain's Civil War career. And uh, many of you, of course, have read the, the private history of the campaign that failed and Twain's other Civil War writing. And, of course, we all know he had a lot to do with Grant's memoirs, uh, not writing them, but uh, uh, but with the production. Uh, so we'll learn about that. On April 8th, uh, Judkin Browning of Appalachian State University here in North Carolina will talk about Eastern North Carolina during the war, uh, right where ECU is located, and he's written about that, and we'll find out what went on right here in the, the, the place I can see through my window. April 15th, Jamie Malinowski, the opinionator, the New York Times Civil War blogger, will be with us. He's been uh, writing a blog for the last uh, six months or so, as though it were 150 years ago, presenting the events week by week, uh, as though he were 
living them for the first time. It's an interesting concept, and we'll talk with him about how that's been going. On uh, and there will be more shows after that. We'll we'll announce them as they are, are lined up. On March 26th at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina, a conference, Public History of the Civil War, will take place and. At 9.15 on Saturday morning, I'll be presenting along with uh, uh, Thomas Mackey, who's been on the show, Aaron Mast, who ought to be on the show sometime. They each direct a Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln-related institution, and we'll be talking about public perceptions of Abraham Lincoln. I will share with you just one more uh, line or two before we bring our guest on that I had the interesting opportunity to speak to the Pitt County Historical Society this past week at their annual banquet. Uh, Pitt County, the home uh, county for Greenville and East Carolina University. The invitation that I I saw after the the talk was lined up welcomed guests to uh, a talk that would be about the war between the states. And then on the next line said this discussion of the so-called then in quotes, Civil War, end quote, uh, features, and then it introduced me after that. So I was a little bit prepared to go into an unreconstructed uh, gathering. And uh, uh, certainly it was, it was a gathering of, of older people. Uh, it was pleasing to, to be among the younger people, not like uh, adult league soccer here in Greenville, or by adults I mean anyone over 20, and I'm the oldest person on the team by... 10 years, it's, it's, uh, it's not good. All I can do is play the age card there. I knock people down, and when they follow me back, I act like crippled grandpa, and the referee gets all sympathetic. Uh, but I can hit them as hard as I want, and they're afraid to hit me. They might hurt me. It's dirty, but you know, when you get older, what else can you do? Um, well, I've given away my secret. Let's move back to uh, the Civil War era. Uh, the, the Pitt County Historical Society was... Uh, was not, uh, as its introduction uh, portrayed it, uh, everybody was very gracious. And uh, I, I was very, did, got to give a, a talk that, that I thought was, was, was reasonably well received about events 150 years ago and about some of the parallels between the, uh, the split uh, in America today between political extremes uh, or even between political moderates on right and left, and the, the, the gulf of understanding and communication between them, uh, fostered by uh, by various for various reasons that we won't go into here, uh, and comparing that to to the lack of communication one sees in 1861, and how difficult it was for the right uh, for the, the north and south rather, not today's right and left, but uh, that generation's north and south to communicate with one another. Uh, to take one another's concerns seriously, to, to believe the other side could possibly mean what they said, that this South Carolina tantrum could possibly be serious and lead to war, or that Northerners could possibly care about this abstraction called Union enough to, to actually fight for it. Uh, and, of course, they did, and the, the cost was unimaginably heavy, and one hopes that uh, 150 years later we will not need uh, uh, 10,000 casualties in two days on some remote uh, meadow on the shores of the Tennessee River before we wake up and realize the other side is in deadly earnest and uh, is not going to simply give way. Uh, And if both sides realize that, then both sides can give way partway because the other side's not going to give up and go home uh, today any more than they did in 1861. 
So both sides need to start compromising, and uh, lest we lest we repeat our history. Well, enough sermonizing. Uh, no one wants to hear that. Uh, everyone does, however, want to go look at impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War talk radio uh, support website. Uh, thanks, as always, to Mark Gaffney for putting that website up where new shows are announced and old shows are linked. If you go there and want to get one of the books you hear about on the show, go to that website, impedimentsofwar.org, and enter Amazon through the link you find there. The price is the same to you, but the website owner gets a fraction of a penny for every $10,000 spent on Amazon uh, and eventually gets something to help him defray the cost of that website. If you contribute, uh, if you donate to Civil War Talk Radio, the proceeds are split between the website and the book fund here uh, at the show, so feel free to do that as well. I've gone on far too long. Let me introduce uh, our, our guest today, Scott L. Mingus, who has written a book, Flames Beyond Gettysburg, about the Confederate expedition to the Susquehanna River leading up to Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, taking place in June 1863. Uh, Mr. Mingus, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, thank you, Jerry. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Well, thank you for, for being on the show. Um, I, I'm found this a very interesting book, uh, but I had first recall seeing your name when I used to subscribe to a obscure hobby publication called Charge. Oh, exactly. Uh, that That's something you produce, still produce? Yeah, Charge, uh, just a quick reference for our listeners, is sure. a uh, international newsletter that my wife and I publish as part of the miniature wargaming hobby uh, where people refight Civil War battles using, you know, small pewter or plastic or paper. Soldiers on three-dimensional terrain, such as model railroad layouts, things along those lines. Uh, in Charge is a magazine that my wife and I publish that have scenarios for war gamers, painting tips for, uh, you know, uh, putting the right uniforms on the the little guys that you're actually painting up for the gaming table and tips on how to make, you know, better looking meadows or fields or painting houses, things like that. So uh, certainly uh, your name's quite familiar to me through that venue as well. Uh, it, it's a, uh, it, it is a fun hobby, and I can say this morning uh, I, I'm teaching a class here at ECU on the Civil War era, and this morning's uh, class session was spent demonstrating the Battle of Gettysburg on the floor of our history laboratory where I had made a, a what you'd call a war game layout about 10 by 14 feet crude by the standards that I've seen photographed in your publication and elsewhere uh, just some indoor outdoor carpet roads made out of masking tape a few buildings and trees but uh, and the figures are, are uh, uh, two inch high plastic ones that you can buy at uh, souvenir shops in Gettysburg and sure. elsewhere uh, the kind, the kind of thing H.G. Wells would have used if he were alive today, exactly. I suspect. Uh, but I, I used it as a demonstration. It was not an active game. I simply moved the figures about to, to show the three days of the battle. And something happened that almost never happens. The, the class hour ended, and a third of the students left, and the other two-thirds just stayed put and began asking questions. And it was noon, many of them had lunch or another class to go to, and they stayed, and they, they said that was awesome. And I, I don't take credit for personal awesomeness, uh, although I may have it, but, but uh, that the, the idea of showing the war in three dimensions uh, in a miniature format 
absolutely communicated to them what uh, what the books didn't necessarily do. They they really got a lot out of it. They'd done their reading in advance. They'd they'd been reading about the battle and read uh, uh, various sources so that they knew what they were seeing. But uh, I, I'm a big proponent of, of visualization uh, as a, a learning tool, and and I think miniature war games can can do that. Indeed. Just a quick quick add-on. Uh, sure. I lived for most of my life in northern Ohio, and we used to do a lot of uh, history demonstrations at the, for example, Case Western Reserve uh, Historical Society's museums. We went to a number of different church groups. We went to different uh, history clubs, things like that, as well as to some of the different schools, and we put on demonstration war games for uh, the students and the uh, onlookers, attendees, etc., and uh, we developed a pretty pretty strong uh, backing for the, the hobby of wargaming. And just to take it one step further, my own two uh, sons were heavily involved in wargaming with me. Now one is a university professor teaching history, and my second one uh, just got his doctorate and is out looking for a teaching position. So uh, the hobby of wargaming directly led to two careers uh, as professional historians. Uh, that is is, is uh, a great story to hear. I uh, I would say I'm one of those as well. I was involved in the hobby before I became a professional historian, uh, and it, it has that effect. If if you look at the and, and listeners, if you go to the Chronicle of Higher Education, uh, last week's issue had an editorial by Mark Carnes, who's written about the Civil War on film, uh, an editorial describing his use of of other kinds of simulation games in the classroom to. Uh, as he put it, set his students' minds on fire to uh, make them involved. And uh, uh, Professor Browning, who will be on the show in a few weeks, has written uh, an article uh, on his use of, of these kinds of techniques. So whatever whatever sets students' minds on fire, whatever gets them uh, drawn in, I think is a valuable technique, and uh, games can do that. Exactly. Um, but now you are not a history professor. Tell, tell no, us I'm about actually, your day job. Uh, yeah, I'm a scientist in the global pulp and paper industry, actually uh, uh, currently serving as the global director of new product development for uh, a $1.5 billion paper company uh, called Glatfelder based in York, Pennsylvania. So I'm about 30 miles uh, away from the Gettysburg battlefield. So do you invent new paper, or what, what, what do you do within that role? Do you... uh, yeah, we actually look for developing new grades of paper, new applications and uses for grades of paper, new, uh, bet, new and better ways of manufacturing paper, uh, alternative uh, raw materials, things along those lines. But certainly we're always looking for places where we can uh, you know, put paper that other substrates such as glass or plastic or film of various sorts uh, might today be used, and we're certainly looking to expand the paper industry as much as we can. Does does the impending death of the book, if you believe the, the Kindle world, uh, affect what you do? Yeah, we're actually the leading producer of permanent book paper in North America. So the vast majority of Civil War books, in fact, particularly those from university presses, uh, as well as other leading uh, publishers come with our paper on it. Uh, we have seen some influence, certainly, of Kendall in the historical community, but far more uh, the New York Times bestsellers. A lot of those are really switching more towards Kendall. And as such, the manufacturing of traditional book paper is dramatically down today 
from, say, just five years ago or so. So, yeah, Kindle's certainly making an impact, as are other forms of electronic substitution. Uh, and then one other key comment I will make that ties right back into the Civil War book community is there are also uh, a lot more books being printed digitally using inkjet or laser printing presses instead of traditional offset. And the good news from that is it enables a publisher, uh, particularly a, a new young publisher like my two sons, whose first Civil War book uh, actually just came out. It was printed digitally, so you can print uh, exactly as many copies as the bookstore wants. You don't have to run off tens of thousands or you know thousands of copies of a book and hope that they sell in the middle of that, keeping them in inventory. This way you just produce what they need. So we're actually getting uh, more titles being produced, although less books. That is very interesting. It does raise issues. I mean, the whole access of... of of getting one's ideas into print uh, uh, changes with that. If, there, if we can reduce barriers to doing that, that's a good thing as long as we can maintain uh, filters of quality. Uh, by that, I mean if, if you can go on the Internet, anybody can put up a website. Any eighth grader can put up a Civil War website, but anyone who says, I think I'll just Google the phrase Civil War and read everything that comes up for the next you know, two days, uh, would come across a lot of crazy talk and a lot of uh, weird, uh, you know, political talk or, or uh, things aimed at elementary students. Uh, whereas if you get a, an academic press book, you know it's something that's been vetted somewhere. Exactly. Uh, uh, so there are differences. Um, let's take a short break. Uh, we we have yet to scratch the surface of your book, which is what we're here to do. We'll do that in just a moment. Coming back in a minute with Scott Mingus, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market do you know that digestive problems adhd and chronic pain can be treated naturally in fact most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions for the sake of your good health tune in to natural solutions with your host dr sean palmer broadcasting live every wednesday at 10 a.m pacific time 1 p.m eastern time on the world talk radio variety channel Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Scott L. Mingus, Sr., author of Flames Beyond Gettysburg, the Confederate Expedition to the Susquehanna River, June 1863. And we got uh, off on a tangent about books and their production. Uh, as, as Scott is a paper uh, scientist for a, a, the largest manufacturer of permanent book paper, the kind of high-quality paper that academic presses use that makes, makes those books feel so good when you hold them in your hand and the ink isn't just rubbing off on your thumb. Uh, uh, this book, uh, however, is published by Savas Beatty, uh, who published many uh, Civil War books. We've had n a number of authors from, from that publisher on the show before. 
And Scott, let's talk about this book. The the first thing that that struck me about this uh, your your description. We'll talk about the events here. Is that the there are lots of old older books uh, about the Battle of Gettysburg that explain A.P. Hill's division was going to Gettysburg on July 1, 1863, because they wanted to get shoes. The town was full of shoes. And uh, all one has to do is read a book like this to realize that can't be the case. Yeah, one of the things that I bring out in the book is is a real key point. There have been more than a 1,000 books published on the Battle of Gettysburg, but frankly only a handful on the week or two that preceded the battle. And frank, to be frank, an understanding of the tactics on the day one of uh, Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863, really has to take into play what was going on in Pennsylvania between the Confederates and the local home guard units and the state militia in the days leading up to it. Uh, make a long story relatively short, uh, the Pennsylvania militia had had uh, on several occasions battled with Confederate uh, veteran troops trying to slow them down and stop them from crossing the Susquehanna River. Uh, and it, often in many of those cases, including at Gettysburg on Friday afternoon, June 26, 1863, uh, the Confederate veteran infantry ran into these Pennsylvania militia and frankly routed them in many cases and were able to take their shoes. Uh, so certainly the idea of Pennsylvania militia deploying Pennsylvania militia not fighting very hard uh, because they're not frankly trained, but retreating and enabling the Confederates to capture them and or capture their uh, shoes or supplies of shoes uh, for various militia units in various towns. Uh, I'm convinced that when Harry Heath on July 1st, 1863, starts his attack on Gettysburg on what turned out to be John Buford's men, that he was in effect mimicking the June 26th uh, fight at Gettysburg where uh, indeed it was Pennsylvania militia, uh, shoes, if you will. And so when uh, Harry Heath asked for permission to go to Gettysburg to go get those shoes, quote-unquote, uh, that could easily be a euphemism for the Pennsylvania militia that he believed was in town. It would also explain the you know well-known phrase, uh, you know, when the, uh, I think it was Archer's Tennesseans or so, realized that they're fighting against the Iron Brigade, and not Pennsylvania militia, they make the comment, uh, taint no militia, it's a black-hatted fellows. So they were expecting militia because because that's what they'd seen for the, the last week. And I think you're absolutely right. The the, the lead up to the battle is, is often, uh, almost exclusively portrayed as just that, a lead up to a battle. But uh, just as, as we sitting here today in 2011 don't realize that we're on the brink of a cataclysmic event of uh, the summer of, of 2011. Now, see, people will download this a year from now and wonder what he's talking about. Uh, my point is, we, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what's going to happen this summer. Uh, I don't know that this is a lead-in year to something else uh, until it happens. Nobody in June 1863 knew that this was just a precursor to a great battle. Uh, so these militia didn't know what what their role would ultimately be. Let's talk about who these militia were. The, the, the Confederate Army, Lee's Army, enters the state of Pennsylvania, uh, begins to spread out. Ewell's divisions in particular are heading due east uh, towards Gettysburg. Uh, who are the – who's supposed to stop them? Uh, yeah, that's a good point, uh, 
as you, take, you step back, when the Confederates had left the Shenandoah Valley, were crossing the Potomac, heading into Maryland, and then, of course, ultimately into Pennsylvania, Governor Andrew Curtin, uh, Republican governor of Pennsylvania, issued a proclamation calling for 50,000 volunteers. That was in response to President Lincoln's earlier call for 100,000 men. Curtin felt that 50,000 of them should be Pennsylvanians to defend uh, his own state. Uh, feverish recruiting across the state of Pennsylvania generated about 7,000 what became known as emergency militia. Uh, and so they assembled in Harrisburg, drafted uh, themselves into companies, uh, organized into regiments thereof, and then, of course, uh, drew guns, rations, uh, tents, uh, uniforms, etc., and were hastily shipped to four locations. Uh, some of these Pennsylvania militia, the majority of them, stayed in Harrisburg, of course, to try to defend the state capital. The 20th Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia was sent to Columbia, Pennsylvania, to guard the Susquehanna River crossing. Uh, the 20, sorry, the 27th was uh, sent to Columbia. The 20th was sent to adjoining York County, uh, partially to cover some other river crossings, but certainly to also guard the very important Northern Central Railway by which. Baltimore and Washington were connected to Harrisburg and points beyond. Uh, and another regiment, the 26th Pennsylvania Militia, was sent to Gettysburg to guard the crossroads community at Gettysburg and to certainly pay attention to anything that might come across the mountains, um, particularly if uh, the Confederates invaded the Cumberland Valley, which Jill Borley's division soon proved on the morning of June 26 to be correct when they turned east and headed straight for Gettysburg. Now, who's in charge of this militia? Who, who, who's the general? Yeah, the Pennsylvania State Militia was all under the control of Major General Darius Couch. Couch had been the commander of the Second Corps uh, earlier that spring at the uh, Battle of Chancellorsville. He had resigned in protest of fighting Joe Hooker's inability to fight in his mind and his temerity. Uh, Couch had been sent uh, in early June then to Harrisburg to start organizing the defense of Pennsylvania and to organize these militia regiments under the uh, aegis of the War Department uh, who sent them up there and, of course, at the behest of Governor Curtin. So the militia, in effect, all these militia units reported to what was called the Department of the Susquehanna, a hastily organized military department under Couch's control. And so he's got these few regiments. You've got 7,000 men altogether, maybe four organized regiments, Gettysburg at York, at uh, Columbia, uh, others at Harrisburg. Exactly. This is 7,000 men against the Army of Northern Virginia, 7,000 untrained men. Uh, it's not going to be a fair fight. No, I mean, they're augmented by state militia from New York and some from New Jersey, so the numbers are actually higher, particularly in the Harrisburg area. But again, these guys, by and large, have not really fought before. And Governor Curtin and Major General Couch, in effect, instruct the militia to do nothing more than delay the oncoming Confederates as long as they can and to deny them passage over the Susquehanna River. Uh, the belief is that they're... In effect, they're going to sacrifice the south-central tier of Pennsylvania, which would be Franklin, Fulton, Adams, uh, York County. Uh, sacrifice those to the Confederates by enough time so that the Army of the Potomac could certainly arrive in Pennsylvania before Harrisburg fell or any other targets uh, such as Philadelphia or anything else uh, that they feared the Confederates were trying to get to. 
And and they can do that with the backstop of the Susquehanna River, which is too big to cross except at the bridge, and there's not a lot of those. Yeah, there was only, at the time of the Civil War, there was only one bridge between Harrisburg and Maryland, uh, which is obviously, if you look on a map of Pennsylvania, is a fairly good amount of real estate. All the other bridges across that area had been knocked down in the intervening uh, decades with uh, ice flows and uh, bad conditions in the river, windstorms, things like that. So the only bridge that at the time of the Civil War existed, uh, again, between Harrisburg, was in central York County connecting uh, the towns of Wrightsville and Columbia. So for any oncoming Confederate troops to get to Harrisburg, you either had to make a direct frontal assault on Harrisburg from across the Susquehanna River, uh, across the Cumberland Valley Railroad Bridge, or the uh, Camelback covered bridge, or flank Harrisburg, which is what Jubal Early's orders were to do, uh, and go east through Gettysburg, continue on through York, go to Wrightsville, capture and seize the bridge, and then continue up the Pennsylvania Railroad and take Harrisburg from its undefended rear. That was Major General Jubal Early's slightly improvised plan. Uh, his original orders were actually burn the bridge to keep any troops from Philadelphia to menacing the Confederate flank and kind of on the fly, Major General Early decided to seize that bridge, send troops into Lancaster County. Uh, in fact, at one point he claimed he wanted to mount them on captured horses and then make a lightning-quick raid on Harrisburg and take it from the rear. So this bridge is really a critical bridge. It's the longest covered bridge in the world, you said. Yeah, it was the book. longest covered bridge actually ever built. Uh, it was a mile and a quarter long. Uh, the bridge originally had been built uh, about 40 years before the Civil War or so, 45 years. Uh, had at one time been knocked down by ice flows and been rebuilt using much the same timber. So by June of 1863, this was a very old, very well-aged uh, bridge, uh, but it was uh, it was critical because it connected uh, the railroad uh, between Philadelphia and York, uh, connected, of course, the uh, passenger traffic. Uh, today, U.S. Route 30, of course, cuts across uh, near that, but it was a very significant highway uh, as far as traffic goes for supply routes as well as for pedestrians, cargoes, industrialists, things like that. So this bridge was not only critical militarily, but it was certainly also a vital economic importance to the south-central Pennsylvania region. So that's where Early is headed. And on June 26th, he gets to Gettysburg and encounters one of these militia regiments and uh, makes short work of it. Yeah, uh, just to, for our readers' benefit, if those who are familiar with the Gettysburg battlefield, at roughly the same spots that the Battle of Gettysburg would take place, uh, west of town on... Uh, McPherson's Ridge, and just beyond there uh, is a series of other ridges, most notably Knoxland Ridge. Uh, th these are places where John Buford on July 1st had established his uh, cavalry lines to combat any Confederates that would be coming down the turnpike from the Chambersburg region from the west. Well, on July, or sorry, on June 26th, as Jill Worley crossed the South Mountain after leaving uh, the area east of Chambersburg, starts coming down the mountain, heading towards Pennsylvania. Uh, the local militia commander, uh, aide-de-camp to Major General Couch, a fellow from the 7th U.S. Infantry by the name of Major Granville O. Holler, established his own lines of uh, militia cavalry and militia infantry on those very same ridges. Uh, and in fact, 
where Marsh Creek is, again, for folks who know the Gettysburg Battlefield, that became a significant defensive point for the militia who deployed, uh, again, on those ridges, Knoxville Ridge in particular. Uh, and as Joe Borley so, uh, deployed his, his front troops, the militia uh, were overwhelmed. Their advance guard was captured by early, maybe 30 to 40 men or so. And the remaining 700 or so militia infantry and about 100 militia cavalry uh, either dashed back into Gettysburg in the case of the cavalry or in the case of the infantry, they fled uh, using roads uh, to the northeast and started swinging uh, towards Harrisburg where uh, about 2 o'clock or so in the afternoon, um, uh, they started stringing out along the roads towards Harrisburg. Uh, by 4 o'clock, the Confederate cavalry had caught up to them at a just pristine little battlefield called Whitmer Farm where uh, Colonel William H. French of 17th Virginia Cavalry made short work of the militia, captured 175 of them, of course, uh, you know, back to the euphemism of shoes. Uh, Jew Worley actually marches these captured, uh, some of these captured prisoners back into downtown Gettysburg, berates them about playing soldier and they should be home with their moms and they should not be out uh, you know, trying to trying to fight because they might get hurt and it was too dangerous for them. So he just basically gives them a tongue lashing uh, and certainly has utter disdain for the fighting ability uh, of the Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia with their three days of training. Wow. Now you mentioned uh, militia cavalry uh, uh, later in the campaign, maybe at this point, if I, I don't recall precisely, but uh, the, the Philadelphia City Cavalry gets involved in this campaign. These are uh, upper-class parade uh, parade unit. It, it made me think sort of of the Shriners, but in their little cars, but not quite, because uh, these guys actually do ride horses, and, and they're fancy horses, and they stay at nice hotels. Uh, and here they are actually going out to fight. Yeah, the first troop, Philadelphia City Cavalry, had been formed originally as a bodyguard for George Washington during the American Revolution, and they performed primarily ceremonial duties uh, at that time uh, through the Civil War. Uh, of course, they're now today uh, a militarized unit of the Pennsylvania National Guard, and they certainly still exist. Uh, and some of our listeners may be, in fact, members of that uh, time-honored organization. But during the Civil War, uh, during the Gettysburg Campaign, this was the second time they'd been activated. Uh, in the fall of 1862, they had actually went down into Virginia to do some scouting uh, without pay, just strictly volunteers. These Most of these men were, of course, millionaires and quite wealthy, uh, the young men of Pennsylvania's gentry, if you will. Uh, they are part of the militia cavalry that's at Gettysburg on uh, the two weeks before the Battle of Gettysburg. They're doing a lot of scouting of the mountain passes uh, west of Gettysburg on South Mountain. They're certainly also doing courier duty. Uh, they're doing a lot of logistic-type work. But scouting and watching for the Confederates is a key part of their repertoire. Uh, they are, along with an Adams County cavalry unit under Captain Robert Bell, form Granville Holler's mounted wing of his defense of Gettysburg, and of course, uh, they perhaps last five minutes to, to ten minutes before they're overwhelmed and they uh, flee the scene. In fact, the Philadelphia City Cavalry and the uh, Bell's Adams County Cavalry will not stop until they reach uh, Hanover, Pennsylvania, and then on to York, where they'll finally rally and spend the night in York uh, before moving to the defenses of Wrightsville. 
Early, you said gave a tongue lashing to these uh, the hapless militia who were captured. Said you should be home with your mothers. You might get hurt. Uh, did anyone get hurt in this skirmishing? At uh, there were certainly some men, particularly on the Union side, that were wounded. But there, and there are some anecdotal evidence of some Confederates that were mortally wounded. But uh, truth be told, there's no evidence that anyone died, with one significant exception. Uh, there was a fellow by the name of Private George Washington Sandow who was part of this uh, local Adams County uh, Cavalry uh, on the Baltimore Pike, just south of Evergreen Cemetery. Uh, he and a fellow soldier by the name of Leitner were patrolling uh, that area, and some of the 35th Battalion of Virginia Cavalry, later uh, renowned as White's Comanches, spot these guys, ordered them to surrender, Leitner takes off and escapes, but George Washington Sando is shot and killed, uh, and his body is left lying in the dirt on Baltimore Pike. Hmm. So it, it's not entirely a game. There is some certainly an element of danger. Uh, what did what did Early's men do once they they possessed the town of Gettysburg? Uh, they actually did several things. First of all, of course, they were raiding the town for all the horses and the supplies they could find. Uh, they were. Uh, creating, uh, you know, battle perimeters, if you will, sending out patrols looking for additional Yankees. They were consolidating uh, their position. But it really became a giant supply hunt. Uh, in particular, though, these uh, Virginia cavalrymen also made it a whiskey hunt. Uh, There's a lot of a lot of stories of, quote-unquote, half-drunk Confederates running around uh, barefoot, uh, stealing the hats off the old men and, and taunting them. So... Certainly, uh, there was some element of partying that night. Uh, Colonel Clement Evans of the 31st Georgia had his band playing southern tunes in Gettysburg's town square most of the evening. They chopped down the town's flagpole. Uh, they certainly are uh, somewhat making a nuisance of themselves, but in effect, uh, you know, by and large, uh, circumstances be told, they behaved themselves relatively well. Uh, with darkness coming on, General Early did not have time to thoroughly explore the town for all the supplies and food and things he hoped to find there. But reality was his target was not Gettysburg, it was York, uh, where a much larger town where industry was indeed. Uh, so he didn't really tarry. He spent the night in Gettysburg, got up at crack of dawn, and his entire division of more than 5,000 men marched east uh, on parallel roads heading into York County. We'll come back in just a moment and find out what the Confederates did when they got to York. When we talk more with Scott Mingus, author of Flames Beyond Gettysburg, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Scott Mingus Sr., author of Flames Beyond Gettysburg. It's about the Confederate troops who went through Gettysburg before the battle on June 26, 1863, and who continued on eastward beyond Gettysburg uh, to York, and ultimately uh, their target, the covered bridge at the Susquehanna River between Wrightsville and Columbia, uh, the bridge that would give them access to Harrisburg uh, on the, the undefended side that would allow them to expand the war into Pennsylvania. We talked in our last segment about how the uh, Confederates, Jubal Early's division, uh, easily routed a handful of untrained Pennsylvania militia at Gettysburg on June 26, occupied the town, and set off the next day for York. Um, uh, Scott, it seems the pattern repeats. Well, York actually doesn't repeat. Uh, at York, the, pen, the, the militia don't fight. Uh, they, they talk. Yeah, it's a rather interesting story. As the Confederates on Saturday morning, June 27, 1863, start streaming both eastward towards York and certainly the uh, rest of Yule's men are heading through Carlisle towards Harrisburg on a, uh, the second part of the movement. Uh, York gets very concerned about what's going to happen. And one local citizen in particular, a fellow by the name of uh, Arthur Briggs Farquhar, uh, who much later in life was the Undersecretary of War, or sorry, Undersecretary of Labor, uh, in uh, the late late in the century, but at this point he's a young 25-ish uh, industrialist. Uh, he's a close friend of Fitzhugh Lee, who had been a uh, college chum of his. Uh, Farquhar jumps in his carriage, rides out west, uh, hoping to find uh, a Confederate general. Back in uh, September of 1862, he had ridden towards Antietam and had found uh, General Lee, uh, Fitzhugh Lee, at that point, and asked him uh, if he was coming to York. You know, will you spare my factory? Will you protect the women and children, et cetera? And so he had a reputation for negotiating rather rashly without authorization with Confederate general officers. So he rides west on what's today Route 30, uh, runs into John Gordon's uh, advanced picket line as Gordon's taking a midday lunch break at a little town called, a little village called Abbottstown, Pennsylvania. And Farquhar, in effect, uh, starts negotiating again, although in this case, John Gordon being a trained attorney, kind of has the upper hand. He produces a map of Pennsylvania and basically demands uh, that Farquhar go back and, you know, in effect, surrender the town, uh, get the militia out of there, make sure there's nobody defending the town, and to pave the way for his uh, commanding officer, Jubal Early, to occupy the town the following day. Uh, Farquhar rides back into York. Uh, you know, the city fathers are horrified that this guy did this has no authorization, so they jump in his carriage, uh, the mayor, a couple members of city council, a union colonel from the 87th Pennsylvania who's homesick, and they all ride back west, and they run into John Gordon uh, about 10 miles west of York uh, at his evening camp, and there the city fathers uh, finish the negotiations with the general, which uh, at the militias retreats to Wrightsville uh, east of, of York, and uh, on the next morning, June 28th, uh, Jubal Early will lead his men triumphantly into York just as the church bells are ringing and all the people are lining the sidewalk in their Sunday best. And, you know, more than 5,000 Confederates, dirty from the highway, grimy, smelling bad, etc., uh, march either through York or occupy York, depending on the particular brigades. 
but the, the role of uh, Farquhar and the mayor uh, becomes highly criticized in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, some people believe York surrenders meekly without firing a shot. Other people think it was the exact right thing to do because you've got, you know, 5,000, 6,000 uh, veteran Confederates bearing in on your town, and York is the largest town in the region with the exception of Harrisburg. Uh, it's 8,600 people. So it's about three and a half times larger than Gettysburg, pretty substantial town. Uh, Jubal Early will actually put the town under tribute. He'll ask for $100,000 as part of his settlement for not burning the town, and they'll go door-to-door raising $28,610 from York civilians that will go back to Virginia as part of the Confederate Treasury. Uh, Early will turn it over to the uh, powers that be in the Army of Northern Virginia, and that money's never seen again. That brings up an interesting point about the treatment of these civilian communities, Gettysburg and York and eventually uh, uh, and Wrightville and, and the other places where the, the Confederate Army moves in. Many of the Union civilians expect that the, the, the Confederates will burn burn their town to the ground, uh, but that doesn't happen in this campaign. No, there, I mean, there's a lot of... The, the title of the book is Flames Beyond Gettysburg. There's certainly a lot of burning, but it's military targets, uh, all the railroad bridges in the area, warehouses filled with uh, supplies for the Union Army. Things like that are burned down, but by and large, the civilian structures are themselves are left alone, uh, although any civilian that has horses, livestock, uh, or any booty of value to the Confederates certainly is going to find... Uh, that they're going to lose that very quickly. But uh, it's not until 64 when Chambersburg is burned that any substantial damage is really done to, uh, deliberately to a Pennsylvania town. But certainly in the summer of 1863, everybody expects somewhere the Confederates are going to burn some town. And York becomes the focal point of those rumors because it's the largest town in the path of Jubilee, and he's brandishing the most torches of anyone. Uh, the, the Confederates are, are quite politically aware, at least uh, you, you, you quote and use a lot of newspaper sources as well as letters and uh, post-war memoirs, but the Confederates frequently seem to tell the Union uh, civilians, we're not, like, we're not like your people. They're reading about the contemporaneous burning of, of Darien, Georgia, uh, by Union troops, and they're saying, we, we don't do that. We're not going to burn your town down. Uh, there, it's a conscious political choice, not just a, a matter of, of military discipline. Exactly. Yeah, and in fact, Jubal Early will, uh, in an amazing story, he will actually dictate a broadside to the local York newspaper, which he pretty much, in print, will say the same thing, that, you know, my men are, my troops are gentlemen, we're here, uh, we didn't burn your town down because we were, or we didn't burn the railroad uh, and military supplies down because we thought your town would burn down, and we don't, we don't wage war the way the Yankees do. So certainly there was a lot of political propaganda that General Early, among other uh, officers, and, and were trying to do, particularly when they knew the press was there. So, so they're they're conscious of, of their role as, as sort of armed ambassadors of the Confederacy as they go out here. Now, they after after York, the next uh, there's there's nothing left between York uh, and the Susquehanna River. Uh, the town of Wrightsville is one end of the bridge and Columbia the other end of the bridge that they've been seeking this whole time. Unlike York, uh, Wrightsville is not going to surrender without a fight. Uh, what yeah, happens that, there? That, yeah, that's really, Wrightsville is really where the uh, 
Governor Curtin, Major General Couch had decided to make their last ditch stand. So all the troops that were protecting York, uh, the, York had a large uh, U.S. Army hospital, so the patients who could move, uh, many of which were the Iron Brigade and other veterans from Antietam and Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg who were still in the York Hospital, uh, they tried to rally just about everybody. Uh, some of those militia that guarded Gettysburg, uh, the Adams County Cavalry, the Philadelphia City Troop, it's an incredible motley array of troops, probably 1,500 to 1,600 men that assemble in Wrightsville, including a number of York civilians with guns, uh, a la John Burns at Gettysburg. Uh, these guys end up uh, trying to stop the Confederates. They have entrenchments, a horseshoe-shaped entrenchments around Wrightsville that have been dug by railroad men uh, as well as by college students uh, from Franklin and Marshall and Millersville uh, colleges and uh, a number of other uh, militia troops uh, that had come to that area. So uh, late in the afternoon on Sunday, June 28th, Brigadier General John B. Gordon uh, deploys his Georgia Brigade, uh, starts to assault those Union entrenchments and uh, the Yankee commanders, uh, Major, Major Holler as well as Colonel Jacob G. Frick of the uh, 27th Pennsylvania Militia, rather skillfully withdraw the militia, despite their lack of training, uh, successfully across the bridge, fire the bridge, uh, and, uh, you know, in effect, thumb their noses of the Confederates from the Columbia eastern bank of the river, watch the thing burn to the ground, uh, while uh, John Gordon's feverishly trying to find buckets and fire engines and anything else that will put out the bridge fire. The uh, And at this point in the book... This is where I was thinking this really is interesting because when one reads about the Gettysburg campaign, about the, the militia, they, they are just an afterthought. They're dismissed and uh, early and others writing after the war certainly make it a point to, to be dismissive of the militia. But by the time they get to Wrightsville, there's enough of them, you say 1,500. They're not going to stop the Army of Northern Virginia. But if it's a cavalry raid, if it's one regiment... Uh, or a couple troops of cavalry that are making a raid, then 1,500 militia will stop them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was part of their intention until they discovered that it was, you know, a brigade of 1,500 veteran Georgia infantry that was approaching uh, behind uh, Jim Worley's cavalry screen. So once they understood it was, you know, a solid infantry strike, uh, Colonel Frick and Major Holler made the decision to burn the bridge and withdraw. Now, keep in mind, that was all, always their intention keep the Confederates from cross, crossing the Susquehanna. So in that regard, the militia delayed the, the uh, Confederates long enough to you know, fire the bridge and get most of their men, except 20 or so uh, who were later captured. But the vast majority of these 1,500 men escaped uh, into Columbia and you know, just kind of sat and watched the bridge burn while uh, Gordon's men actually ended up trying to save the town in another interesting bit of public relations. Uh, a storm blows in. Uh, embers from the burning bridge set the town's lumber yards on fire. Uh, that fire threatens to consume the entire town, and John Gordon orders his Georgia infantry to form a bucket brigade. They mysteriously suddenly find all the buckets that the civilians had hidden beforehand, and uh, they, they launch a very humanitarian role to actually save the town of Wrightsville, uh, which they do uh, quite successfully. Uh, they save probably you know 80% of the town. So it, it uh, so the militia accomplishes their goal. They they hold off, they stop the forces they can stop at a small cavalry screen. And when faced with something bigger, they uh, 
delay, then they get out of town and and burn this bridge. So at that point, um, now there's nothing else to do. Gordon's got his brigade in town, but they can't go any further. The river is far too wide to cross. And far too deep because of uh, rains. Uh, so all the fords were well underwater. So, so the idea of attacking Harrisburg is is now a lost cause. All they can do is is turn around and go back to York uh, the next day, and that brings us to uh, the the day everybody recognizes. Now it's July first, and while this is not your your story ends here in the book but the reader who anyone interested enough to read a book like this already knows a lot about the battle of gettysburg uh, pretty clearly and at that point you suddenly realize those reinforcements that show up uh from the northeast corner of the battlefield on july 1 the the when early's division gets there providentially for for the confederate side just in time to flank the 11th corps uh, now you know where they've been and why they've been there, and uh, and 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 you get a sense they've been. The, the Battle of Gettysburg is another stop on this tour. It's not the 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 destination. It's not the goal. It's just another day. Uh, one day you you get go into Gettysburg and fight militia. One day you go to the river and the bridge burns. The next day you go back to Gettysburg and there's some more fighting there. And uh, suddenly it's all in context. So I think yeah, exactly. it's a real real service. Yeah, I think that's why the book's been so very popular is because it's the first time I think anyone's really examined in detail how the Confederate troops happened to arrive from the northeast and the west, and the, and the Yankees, of course, came from the south. But most people are well aware of that from studying the Battle of Gettysburg, but you know why the troops were in the position they were uh, has really not adequately been explored in any depth, uh, at least until... Uh, Wilbur Knight did a classic book back in the 60s called Here Come the Rebels, and then, of course, my book, which takes it even further in depth of, with focusing on Early's division. But, uh, you know, for about 500 or so of John Gordon's men that are formed this bucket brigade at Wrightsville and saved the town, about 500 of his men, roughly a third, will be shot or otherwise wounded or captured at Gettysburg. Ah, an irony there, too. Well, Scott, I appreciate you being on the show. As always happens too soon, we're out of time. But I hope our listeners will get themselves a copy of Flames Beyond Gettysburg and learn about this interesting aspect of the battle. And again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.